Hi, I'm Wyatt. And I'm Grace. And you're listening to Our Dad and your host of the Vacation Rental Revolution podcast. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Vodacy Vacation Rental Revolution podcast. I'm your host, Sean Moore, and I am excited to be back with you this week. I took the week off last week. We were in Hawaii with the family, and when we were in Hawaii, I sent an email out to a lot of our listeners that are on our email list, and we asked them for a question. I said, what should I cover on the next podcast episode. We got a whole bunch of responses back, in fact, and so I thought it would be fun. What I I thought I was going to do originally was say, okay, let's cover a bunch of topics, but today's episode is going to be a little bit different. What I want to do is I'm going to pull up these emails, I'm going to read them, and I'm going to answer those questions. We have about 30 of them. I'm going to try to get through them. If we have to cut it off just so it doesn't get to be too long of an episode, if we only get through half of them, we'll do a part one and a part two. We'll see how it goes. So we'll just kind of roll with it and and see what we can come up with and put together. And so thank you, as always, for joining me. I know your time is valuable, and we're going to try to do our best to add and make sure that we're adding value to your time that you're spending with us. So we're going to start off, and I'm just going to read the first name, not the first and last name of the questions. I'm going to read the questions, so bear with me here um, if I'm squinting a little bit at the screen because I'm trying to read emails as well on uh, on the computer as uh, as we're trying to do this. So this first one is from Daniel, and Daniel said, I think another podcast talking about how to keep moving forward when you hear so much talk about inflation and higher interest rates, and I know you've discussed about it in a, in a past episode, but we are closing on our first short-term rental. And I have to purposely not listen to the news or hear people talk because that can scare me right now. So maybe discuss how you try to gather information, but also keep your head straight and focused when the world is screaming that the sky is falling. And we've got a couple of iterations of this question, Daniel. So we'll start with yours. And one, it's hard. It's really hard. And um, and that's not unique to our situation today, right? Um, when, if you look back in the past, one thing that's true about the news and media and everything else is you get more likes, you get more views, you get more listens. And if you have bad news, the news outlets like bad news. And so that's what we're typically hearing and talking about. It doesn't mean that we can just ignore some of the signs that we're seeing in markets because markets do shift around. However, I don't watch the news and listen to the news hardly ever. Um, but I do pay attention to the statistics and those things in the market. So it is difficult. Like you said, you have to you have to still be gathering information, being able to use that information for your underwriting. But you have to be very, very, very careful about the sources and who's telling you what and what the ulterior motive is. Is it to to get readership or views on an article or a picture or likes on a on a post? And if that's the case, it's most likely going to get more traction if it's bad news. That's why the media outlets show us all the bad news. Now, there is always things going on. Right now, we've got rising rates. We've got inflation that's going out of control right now. We've got a lot of markets that are at their, you know, at very very high peaks, you know, they're all-time highs in a lot of markets. But if you go back and you rewind, we're always dealing with something. There's always a reason not to move forward, right? There's the war in Ukraine recently, the elections, the pandemic. You know, you go back even further and you'll find that um, there was, you know, we had the housing crash and we had the, the all the speculation before. We had the mortgage crisis. We had the dot-com bubble. And you keep going back in time. There's always, and, and, that, and now I'm kind of taking further chunks back in time, but there's always something going on. There's always a reason 
not to move forward. There's always a reason that things are going to come crashing down. Now, that doesn't mean we can ignore certain indicators out there in the market, like that a lot of these markets are oversaturated. And saturation in and of itself in markets is not necessarily a bad thing. It means that there's a lot of demand. And the cream will rise to the top. Most markets or most anything in that matter, for that matter, with a lot of demand will become oversaturated. And you will have players in the market that are going to get washed out and they're going to get hurt and they're going to struggle because they didn't understand the game they were playing. And so is it difficult when everything around seems to be bad and, and the, the sky is falling? Yes, it is. And, but you have to realize that that's what sells. Bad news sells, period. And we've got, we're overexposed on social media. We're overexposed with everybody telling you how to do, what you should do, who you should listen to, all of those different things. So you have to peel back a few more layers of the onion, figure out what your property goals are, figure out what your real situation is, right? Are you in a situation that is that is struggling or is likely to struggle? And you have to, you have to make sure that you're lining up your cards the right way for your situation, not only personally, and then you look, okay, regionally, what am I looking at? You know, what does my industry look like that I that I operate in on a daily basis? What about short-term rentals? Where am I investing my money? Why am I investing my money there? And answer some of those questions. So you're actually getting in and underwriting deals correctly. So it is hard. Keep your head down. Stay focused on what the property goals are, what your personal financial goals are, and make sure that you understand the underwriting as you start to dive into this game and you have some contingencies, right? You're, you've got some conservative contingencies built in based on where we're at in the market. And so it's hard, but um, we, people do it every day. And I'm personally am one of those people that I don't pull up, I don't have news on my phone, right? I don't have, I don't see news on my phone. I don't sit and watch Fox or CNN or any of those news channels, the you know, the, any of the networks, because it's all bad news. And I just got tired of it a long time ago. It wasn't recently. I've, I stopped watching the news a long, long time ago. Um, and I, I have specific data sources that I like, that I go into and trust, that, it, that I'm just looking at data and trying to make my decisions based on that. Doesn't mean it's always right, but it's been working for us for a while. And we realize there's always opportunities, good times and bad times. And if you're just listening to the news, it's going to feel like, everything's bad all the time because that's what sells. You just have to realize it doesn't doesn't mean that everything is really all bad. It just means that was that's what sells. So, good question though, Daniel. So, Carrie, next question up. Is there a strategy that will allow me to rent out a home without owning it? The answer to that is yes, Carrie. It's not something that we do here at Bodicey. We focus on ownership. We focus on purchasing these properties. However, most of the people in the short-term rental game, as far as coaching and teaching people how to get into this game, that, that is actually what they teach. They teach what we call rental arbitrage, or they teach what we call co-hosting. And both of those models are you go and you can make money with these types of properties by partnering with somebody, whether you're going to sign a long-term lease, that would be more the rental arbitrage. And you would, if I was the homeowner, Carrie, you would call me and say, hey, Sean, I know you don't want to deal with this. Um, I will give you a long-term lease and pay you X amount every month. And then I'm going to go and put it on Airbnb, use it as a short-term rental. And you become the middleman. You really become the manager of that property and you make your money on the spread between what you're able to get on the short-term rental market and what you're paying me as a long-term rental and a long-term investor. Co-hosting, on the other hand, is set up where you're going to come to me and say, hey, Sean, 
can we partner on this and I'm going to take a percentage of the of the booking fees and you're going to get the rest. And so it's a little bit less risk and that's where the a lot of rental arbitrage models and gurus and coaches have, have shifted to that model because you don't have to sign a long-term lease. And so you'll start to hear of co-hosting. Now, what can be confusing is a lot of these people say, hey, we're gonna teach you how to invest in short-term rentals, invest in this real estate. You're not really investing in the real estate unless you're gonna go buy some furniture or whatever else, but you have real no, really no ownership in the real estate in those models, but you, that's what you're asking. And so it's not what we do here at Vodacy, but there are a lot of people who do that and coach that and teach that and have success with that. What you really become is that middleman person where you're going to become the manager of the property. You're going to be responsible for booking it and getting dealing with the guests and everything else. And so it's kind of what I call a side hustle where I really promote having, in fact, I I actually don't mind using and partnering with co-hosts because they're essentially just management companies um, at a smaller level, a lot of them, and they can do a really good job, frankly. Um, then, and then you got your own little boutique manager who is going to partner with you, and a lot of times the fees that you're going to charge or that you're going to collect on that is going to be similar to what I'm willing to pay a management company. And so, good question, but yes, there is a way to do this without owning the home, and not what we teach here, not what we do. We really focus on ownership and the benefits of ownership for the long term. But if you want to get in the game, there's a lot of people that do teach that, just not us here at Odyssey. So good question. Dean. Dean is a member of our Odyssey group, not uh, not new to owning or managing long-term rentals, but into the new to the short-term rental game, looking in Newport Beach, Huntington Beach, California. So far, um, the asking prices of homes are generally higher in that Southern California area. As a result, if I find something that makes sense, I may need to bring in investors slash partners to close a deal. Is there a podcast where you can talk about syndications or joint ventures? Do these investors need to be accredited investors slash sophisticated investors? Great question, Dean, and another one that is going to be a kind of a repeat topic um, that as I get through some of these other questions. But the answer is it depends on your relationship, right? So partnering and JVing on something the closer your relationship with is is with somebody and the more equitable the investment so it, the less you have to worry about being accredited or dealing with accredited investors and the less disclosures you have to do the registrations you have to do and so you have to be very very careful if you start to raise money or have partners come into deals with you that you are soliciting outside of just a regular relationship and so that's where you have to be start to be very careful and where you have to start to register with the SEC hire securities attorneys to write up your PPM or your offering memorandum that you can get and then they're saying, okay, you can only bring in accredited investors. Accredited investor is somebody who has, I think it's uh, $250,000 in annual income for the past three years or a net worth of over a million dollars excluding their primary residence. And so that qualifies them as an accredited investor and being more sophisticated. So you're not taking you know, $10,000 from somebody that, that really doesn't understand what they're doing. And, and so the SEC does regulate that kind of stuff. And so the easiest way to think about it is how far removed is that person from a relationship? Have you had a relationship with them for some time? Is it a friend, a longtime friend or a family member? Now, if that's the case, then you don't have to have as many disclosures. You can partner with somebody. I partner with people a lot of times and many times that we have, we've never had to go through that process. Now, if you're thinking about bringing somebody in that and is soliciting somebody, um, there's a lot of different rules and regulations that we can't really get into all of them on this, but 
what I want you to think about is where is the relationship and where does it lie with those people that you are bringing into a deal? And second, is it equitable, right? What if you bring in four people and everybody puts in 25% of the money, everybody puts in 25% of the risk and, and all of those different things? That, that, that situation means that you probably don't have to worry about all of your, you know, being them being accredited and putting the, the deal together and registering with the SEC, all those different things. You start to remove yourself from that. And let's say you're saying, hey, I'm going to be the manager of this deal or the general partner, like a, a syndication would be typically set up with your general partners and then your limited partners being the money and the general partners being the managers. And then you have a certain split that you that you negotiate on the front end. And when you start to get a little bit more like that, then that's when you have to you start to have to really consider how you're setting it up, getting attorneys involved, making sure that they can help you get that set up because you don't want to get in trouble there because it can that can catch up to you really quick. So it's a really good question because a lot of people think, okay, I'm just gonna I'm gonna become an expert in this, and I've got people that want to put money in. But if you're one, you if you're soliciting at all, you really you really should be getting registered and understanding the rules. And there's different different levels and ways that you're going to set up the the partnership and the syndication and everything else. So, um, but if it's just an equitable partnership, you don't have to worry so much about that. And they don't have to be accredited. You guys have a good relationship, friends or close family members, and everything's going to kind of get split up equitably then you don't have to worry about it so much. So those that's kind of the general guidelines there. And hopefully that's helpful as you start to move forward. Pete, we're going to dive in. So Pete says, since um, we asked directly for the questions, here's mine. Do you find it more difficult to conduct business in California than other states? In my industry, California is the kiss of death given their environmental and employment business, um, anti-business over-regulation and tax policies. However, from a personal and logistics standpoint, parts of California make sense to us to own a short-term rental. Is it that bad or should I consider owning in California? Thanks, Pete. So Pete, good question. And uh, one, California has a lot of different areas and we have a lot of members that do really, really well in California. And so when you go into any area like a California that is going to be like it's typically higher and more regulated and have a lot more rules. You just have to make sure that the way that you want to operate is going to fall within those rules. And so, and, and that's what it comes down to. You look at it and say, okay, does the business I'm looking at going into short-term rentals, owning a short-term rental, one, are they allowed because they might not be allowed? Two, what are the regulations and what are they, what are they requiring me to do? And that's not California exclusive to California. There's a lot of areas right now that are getting very regulated with short-term rentals. And so one, and that's part of that acquisition phase is really understanding the area you're going into. Short-term rentals are not allowed in many areas right now. People just assume, hey, I'm going to go buy a short-term rental and I'm going to put it on Airbnb and I can I can operate legally. That's not the case. And California is not not um, exclusive to those rules, right? The, California is is a little bit higher regulated and you will find that there's some rules that you may or may not like. There's higher taxes a lot of times in California. And so it could make it to where the deal doesn't underwrite. The Dean's question before, Newport Beach, Huntington Beach, high acquisition costs, but they also bring in a decent amount of money. And so they could work. And, and we have a lot of members that make them work. So I would definitely not say, oh yes, I, you know, 
California's got the plague and I'm not going there as far as the plague of investing in short-term rentals. That's not the case. But you do definitely want to walk into it with your eyes wide open and make sure that you're comfortable in any area that you invest, whether it's California or anywhere, right? And so um, you could be in the most conservative state and still have a lot of regulations that um, around short-term rentals or some other, uh, you know, operating this type of a business. And so the rules and the regulations are definitely not exclusive to California in this instance. And uh, so I don't personally own any in California, but we have a lot of members who do and have great success there. And so I think you just have to look at each the, each area you're looking into, make sure that they're allowed first and foremost. What if they are allowed? What rules do you have to follow to operate legally and successfully? And does it underwrite correctly? And if it does, yeah, then California can be a great, a great option for you. California has an amazingly diverse geography and and different areas to visit. There are a lot that draws a lot of crowds and a lot of visitors, and that uh, that is what drives our business on the short-term rental side. So the demand is definitely there. From the side of the of the guests coming in, and so you have to decide: is it is it an environment as an owner that you feel comfortable with owning and operating? And so, good question, Charles. Charles says, "Hey, Sean, I've really enjoyed your content so far. Thank you, Charles." Unfortunately, I don't have a lot of spare capital to invest in lifestyle assets at this time. I've seen most, but not all of the podcasts, so I'm not sure if this topic was discussed yet, but do you think it would be possible to do a podcast or on joint venture investments in lifestyle assets? This would be either both parties providing equal capital or one party providing most or all of the capital and the other party providing most or all of the learning, research, work, management, etc., I'd imagine this scenario works best with family members or close friends as they would be sharing the vacation residences. Um, so Charles, yes, that's very similar to Dean's question above. And, and the, the answer would be the same. And I actually, because we get this question a lot within our group, I have um, some of my advisors. I actually have attorneys that, that set this stuff up for us that uh, help us with certain funds and syndications and things like that. that and that's what they do. What I, what I think I will do um, is bring some of those guests on in the future so we can talk in detail and they can speak much more intelligently than I can about really what you ought to be watching out for and how to set it up and when it makes sense to set it up. Sometimes the deals as vacation rentals, it might not be a big enough deal to go through the hassle of all of that. You know, there might be a certain dollar threshold based on the the money you're going to make from the deal that, you know, spending sometimes, you know, we, we're in the process right now of setting one up. It's a $65,000 um, attorney bill just to get the PPM set up. And so the deal has to be large enough to make, make all that, those things make sense as well. But to your point, it does make more sense and you have way less rules and regulations and everything else when it is close friends and family, and you all go into it together. And a, a partnership can be structured any way that you want it to be structured. And, and, and it, as long as everybody agrees upon it, and the closer that relationship is, the more leniency you have with with uh, like registrations and disclosures and everything else that are required as, as those relationships get a little bit further removed from you. And close friends and family is about the only the only section that you have leniency. Once you start to get outside of your direct sphere of of uh, relationships, then then you have to start thinking about registrations and disclosures and all that stuff. And you really should have those those disclosures and great contracts, even with good friends and family. I don't want you to think that we just go into these as handshakes, but uh, but those are the same that same advice that I was talking to Dean about. So good question there, Charles. 
Susanna, a um, couple questions. One, how about some true acquisition case studies where people crunch numbers, what assets they're working with before taking a leap, what financing they chose, what their investment costs are, et cetera, um, and so that we can look at an actual deal. So one, I, and I actually have, um, Susanna, I have another one of the questions down the line that somebody asked the same thing. We will, I will do an episode or probably that's easier to do a, on um, on a YouTube release and so, so that you can actually see how we underwrite a deal. I think that that is a great idea where we take an actual property and actually underwrite it and show you guys what we're doing and showing the, the actual numbers and the underwriting. And so, and that's a little bit more difficult to do like on this one, because it's kind of a, just a, we're going through the questions and that, that really requires you to look at a screen and what we're doing on the screen. And so um, YouTube would be a great platform for that. And I know we post these podcasts on you on YouTube. And so we'll make sure that we cover some of that on there. So we are going to do that. I, I that's, that'll be another question down the line that I noticed. Um, Question number two, what if you're a renter for your primary residence? What is the best strategy to enter the short-term rental market to acquire your first property? Most shows, yours and others, seem to assume primary home ownership and discuss financing, et cetera, through that lens. That's a great question, Susanna. So most of us do probably talk as if um, most of the people diving into investments already own a primary home. So a couple options. One, you could, if you're looking for a primary home that has maybe an accessory dwelling unit or a basement apartment or my mother-in-law situation and you're renting out part of your space, you could buy it as a primary residence and use part of it as a rental. Um, you're, you would be allowed to do that as, a pri- as, long as, you're, as, as long as it is your primary residence. It gives you some better loan terms, some better options, lower interest rates, which is nice right now as rates are going up significantly. But outside of that, the options are basically the same. If you're going to buy a, an investment property or a, you know the second home or uh, using um, DSCR type loans, some DSCR type loans require you to actually own a primary residence before you can get that, but some of them don't, and you can still get investment property loans without owning a primary residence. As long as you've got the income and the credit to qualify, you would still have to though classify it as an investment property. You're not going to be able to use a primary resident loan as an investment property. And so it it really more matters your strategy of if you actually want to buy a property as a primary residence and turn part of it into or use part of it as a short-term rental, that's an option. A lot of people do that. And, um, And it definitely is an option to get into the game. But if you're like, hey, I really, I'm not gonna probably live in it. I want it strictly as an investment. I don't mind renting. 100% 100% um, as, as an option as well. And the strategies and financing that we're talking about, really the, those options don't change much outside of, I do know some DSCR lenders that require a primary residence before you can get those type of loans. But there will still be options to buy investment properties if you don't own a primary residence. So you just want to double check with the lender. So good question. Woody, how about a response to this video? Is the vacation rental bubble about to happen. And so I actually watched this video, Woody, and I will give kind of just a quick synopsis of the video for those of you listening. Um, Woody sent over a video from an influencer on YouTube and decent, I mean, way bigger channel than mine and says the, the Airbnb bubble is about to crash. And there was three main topics that he talked about. One, he said that there, he thinks that the one, the Airbnb bubble is about to crash and it's going to be one of the largest real estate crashes that we've ever seen. And then 
the premise behind that was there's a lot of people that got into this game and are going to get burned because they had no clue what they were getting into. They were underwriting these deals at these crazy, um, these crazy returns and they were pushing all the prices up and everything else. Now, part of me agrees with him on that. And the other part very much disagrees with him on that. So one, I do agree that there's a lot of people that got into the short-term rental game in the last couple of years, really riding that wave, not knowing what they're getting into. And so for those of us that are in it for the long term, I do think that there's going to be a number of people getting out of the game. The bubble about to burst, I don't believe that that's the case. I, When you look at supply and demand, like I know, and this goes back to Daniel's question earlier of like, hey, listen, I'm listening to all this stuff. The sky is falling. That if you look at this gentleman's channel, every one of his videos is all bad news. Everything's always coming down, and yet he wants everybody to get into crypto, which is fine. Crypto's great if you want, if you know crypto. I don't know anything about crypto, but crypto didn't fare too well at the as as of the recording of this podcast. The last couple of months, crypto has not looked that, that good. Doesn't mean crypto's bad. It just means it's going through its cycle, right? It's figuring it's figuring things out, but it's about it's dropped in half of what it was about a year ago, um, and so it depends on your outlook on things. But I I believe that that this video was a little bit more clickbait than anything because there was not a lot of fundamentals talked about beyond just saying the the only thing I agree with him on is that there was a lot of people that got in that that. Um, really don't know how to underwrite a deal, which I 100% agree with that. There's there's so few people that are underwriting the deals right now, and you have to be really careful. Very, There's a lot of markets that are not underwriting that great, and you're having to be, and you your numbers are tighter right now with rates going up, with inflation going up. However, when inflation's going up, hard assets are a pretty good thing to own in a lot of people's opinion, mine, mine included. And so there's a lot of these markets People like this video said that all of us that are investing in Airbnbs and and short-term rentals, he he was specifically talking about Airbnbs. That's why I'm mentioning that. But short-term rentals driving these markets up. And that's not the case. If you go look at a lot of these markets right now, there's a lot of buyers who are investors buying properties. They're just parking money in real estate right now. And so the money, there's a lot of people just buying properties saying, hey, I'm I see what's going on in the economy, and I'd rather have my money in real estate than somewhere else. And so you got a lot of a lot of people just parking money in real estate. Well, we happen to invest in nice areas, vacation type areas, and if you're going to just park your money somewhere, why not park it there, right? And so we see these markets that that a lot of times they're not, they're not necessarily going on the market on as a short term rental or an Airbnb or even as a residence. Some, nobody's living in them. There, there's a lot of people buying them as second investment homes, and they're just parking their money there. So the supply and the demand gap in the real estate game is is still very much weighted that we've that we've got a supply and demand issue and is still very much a seller's market. So but I, I think a lot of people are still buying into that and I think we're gonna see more inventory come on the market. I, I think there's gonna be people who bought that have no idea how to operate these these properties. They take more than people I think assume and so they will probably have an issue. His second premise was that Airbnb has just changed their policy, and as the economy starts to struggle and people start to struggle, that they're going to start to take advantage of short-term rental hosts. And because Airbnb had a policy about a month ago came out and say, and he could have recorded this video a month or so ago. I didn't pay attention when it was. But it said anybody for really any reason can come in and say, 
within 72 hours of them being in the property saying, I don't like this property. It's not up to my standards. It's dirty. There's a cockroach on the floor. I found some crumbs in the cupboard. It really didn't matter. And they could get their money back and Airbnb would rebook them in another property. And the host who they who they complained about had to pay for their new booking. And so it was a really bad move by Airbnb. Airbnb has since removed it. Um, I, in fact, I think if you listen to the last po- couple podcasts um, going back when they did that, I actually addressed that and said, listen, I don't think this is going to last. I think they're going to get a lot of backlash. This makes no sense to do this as a policy. So a lot of the video was about that, saying you're going to get completely screwed as a host because people are going to start taking advantage of you. And so um, that has that policy has changed. And, and can people try to take advantage of you? Yes. Can they take advantage of you in a long-term rental? Yes. Can they do it in just a regular business? Yes. Is there risk? Yes. I'm not saying there's no risk, but at the same time as it doesn't mean I believe, or it doesn't, it's not going to keep me out of the game. The third premise was that as the economy starts to shift around and travel gets more and more expensive, that the hospitality business and short-term rentals, nobody's going to stay in them. And and I, you're just going to have a hard time convincing me of that because a lot of short-term rentals are a very economical way to travel because you can rent whole homes. You can usually share them with other people. So you're splitting the cost. You usually have full stocked kitchens, so you don't have to go out to eat. So you actually can travel a lot cheaper than going the other route. And we didn't see when people are stressed out and things are not going great and they're having a hard time. A lot of times they want that release. They want to get away. Now, that's assuming that everybody's struggling. Whenever you have dips in an economy and you will have sectors of the economy that struggle worse than other sectors. And so there's always going to be people that want to travel. Travel is never going to go away, in my opinion. You, you're, you will have a hard time convincing me of that. So again, this is my opinion, but Woody, those are my responses to kind of his three points in that video for those of you that were uh, that have either seen the video or that that I could actually share a response to so thank you for sending that over um, David is our next one up are there any ways to have a down payment other than the traditional way of saving money David the, the traditional way of saving money is always the best way and so I would suggest you roll up your sleeves and, and it might take some time and save that money, save for the down payment. There are a lot of people who tap into the equity of existing properties. That's another great way to get down payment money. However, you have to take that with a big asterisk in my opinion. You do not want to over leverage any existing properties or if you do that for your down payment, you tap into equity in one property and put it into another property, what you're essentially doing is 100% financing the property you're buying. And so that is a little bit of a scary scenario in any market, and especially in the markets as tight as they are right now. And so I, I do believe it's smart to have skin in the game. I do believe it's smart to not over leverage a property. I like having, in fact, even the 10% down financing loans that are available for the, those of you who are short-term rentals. A year or two ago, I thought things underwrote really well at 10% down financing because we had there was there was that room in there. I think that right now, 15, 20, 25% down in some of these markets is a smarter move than 10% down, even if 10% down is an option. And so but that's my opinion. I like to be a little bit more conservative. And so, David, I would suggest, depending on your situation, and I don't know it, you know, saving up the money so you don't feel like you're, you're 
over leveraging any property that you have. But that being said, like I have, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that have a lot of equity and you're not going to over leverage your property by pulling some out. And it still can be a responsible way to do that, right? We, if you've got million dollar property that you have a $200,000 loan, if you want to pull out $100,000 or $200,000 on that and use it for another property, and that property that you're going into can underwrite with the first mortgage and the, the payments on your HELOC, that, that's not a bad way to do it either. And so we see a lot of people do it, and you can still do that responsibly, in my opinion. And so good question. Chad, had a great call with one of your team members today and started to watch the podcast. Thank you, Chad. I haven't had a chance to view all of them yet, so I don't want to make a suggestion on something you already covered. I've been contemplating short-term rentals for some time and have been attempting to self-educate myself, but hitting a roadblock on some key areas, lending, legal structure, etc. I do want to create a legacy with my kids and we share the same mindset as you regarding experience versus material things. I do feel a recession is coming and I'm a bit hesitant to take the leap right now. Florida's real estate market has been on fire and I wonder if it would be best to wait for a recession for a better deal or should I hop in now? On my call with Greg, I told him that I started researching tax lien certificates and as an investment vehicle that can possibly allow the ability to obtain a property at a fraction of the assessed value. Are you familiar with them? And do you think they offer synergies to short-term rentals? So good questions, couple questions. One, <clears throat> thank you for joining and talking to our team member and really considering all of this. And the recession, you know, we've, we've hit on that topic. There's always going to be reasons to believe that we should wait. Now, cycles in real estate typically take a little bit of time. And so do I think that we're at the top of a cycle? Absolutely. I don't think that we're, I don't think that we're at the bottom of a cycle by any stretch. I think we're at the top of a cycle. I think we're going to start to see markets soften a bit. I don't think we're going to see a crash. I don't think we're going to see much of a correction in many of the markets until supply and demand issues even up, right? And so, and most of the markets across the country, we're, we're nowhere close to that right now. Second, as long as your deal, if you're buying property, cash flow producing property, and, and short-term rentals are one, but long-term rentals, multifamily properties, those types of assets that are long-term cash flow producing properties, if your property underwrites right now at the top, now are your margins a little bit smaller? When you were underwriting three years ago, maybe you were underwriting deals and seeing 15, 20% cash on cash returns. Well, maybe today you're only underwriting them at 5% cash on cash returns. And, but somebody else is still paying down a property for you. Well, what if the cycle takes a year or two years or three years, and you're trying to wait, and then what are you going to wait for? You're going to wait for the bottom? Because that might be another three or four or five year slide. Well, if I had a property that was producing, and even if the property was breaking even, which I, I don't suggest underwriting break-even properties because I do think you have to have some contingencies for dips, but let's say you just broke even during that whole span and somebody was paying for a property for you know, a six or seven year span for you before you decided now's the time to buy, well, you're in a much better position and you're in a much, much better position if you're buying all the way down and all the way up. That's, what, that's why I always tell people when you're buying long-term producing assets, buying all the way up and buying all the way down, one, it hedges your bet. It diversifies your portfolio. Some of them, you're making more money than others, but I never buy one that is not going to cash flow. We buy cash flow producing properties for a reason, for the cash flow. And sometimes the cash flows not as huge as other properties, but that's okay, in my opinion. And so now, do I think we're, we're at the top? Yes, I think we're going to be at the top, though, for a little while. 
and you know probably a two to three year run. Well, you can do a lot of damage in two to three years with these properties. So that's what that's what I think about that and the strategy behind that. And so let's see, uh, tax lien certificates. I am familiar with tax lien certificates. I have never bought a property with tax lien certificates. I have tried early in my career to buy a property with tax lien certificates. I was not successful, and it was a lot of effort and a lot of work on. And But take with the grain of salt uh, that I am not an expert. Um, in, in that. And so there are people who understand that much, much better than I do. I have tried it and didn't have a lot of success. And they can offer synergies with short-term rentals because it's essentially buying um, properties that are delinquent on their taxes. And that can be commercial properties. It can be residential properties. It can be anything. So, um, but that is not something. And on the surface, it sounds great because you buy properties at a fraction of the cost of what they are, but most properties don't end up actually selling as a tax lien. The owners will make up those taxes or somebody will make up, if, if it's got a mortgage on it, the, the lender's not going to let that property be resold because they've got, the, they've got the right to pick it up. So there's a lot of different, a lot of different roadblocks with tax liens. Doesn't mean you can't do it. Doesn't mean there's not people that do it. Means that I'm not an expert on it though. So good question. So Chris and Sherry. Hey, Sean, love your podcast. Listen to it every week. Awesome. Thanks, guys. I'm in the middle of the final two weeks of setting up our first vacation rental. There's still so much to do. It's exactly like what you said in your podcast. Our lakefront property is located in Northern California, and I'm curious about short-term rental owner's insurance. I've been rejected by a few companies as soon as they hear vacation rentals. Do you have any contacts like the ones that you bring on your podcast for financing, et cetera? Yes. Good good question. So who I typically use for my short-term rental insurance, and I believe they're the gold standard, but they're not the only game in town, is I always start with proper insurance. They are specifically for short-term rentals, and they will cover your, they can take care of that. your homeowner's policy. It's a, it's a commercial policy and, and being able to run a short-term rental business out of that. And so it covers a lot of things, very comprehensive policy. I would start there. They are going to be a little bit more expensive than regular insurance. Now, a couple of things with proper insurance. They're going to be, and, and you, I mentioned this because you mentioned Northern California. They are very specific on not um, insuring properties in what they tag as fire zones. So if you are in the mountains and, and you are in what they call a fire zone, and they can tell you very quickly, look up proper.insure, and you can submit a quote online, and they're very, very quick to get quotes from. They don't like properties in fire zones, and they really don't like properties, and they will insure properties like in Florida, Texas, in areas in the hurricane zone areas, but they don't provide, and if they, well, I shouldn't say they don't, if they do provide wind insurance, it's usually typically pretty expensive. So not always a great option for wind. So I usually get that policy excluding wind and I'll buy a supplemental wind policy from somebody else. Another place you can go to if you go is Goosehead Insurance. A lot of our members, that is a brokerage and they have, they'll what they'll do is they'll provide you a number of a number of different insurance companies that are short-term rental specific and that will give you options in different areas that you can look at pricing and what they've got. And so that's where I'd start. That's where I'd point you. That's where I, what, what we use personally. Um, I use proper on all of my properties, but I, um, and sometimes it, it can be cost prohibitive and sometimes you can look at it and they'll say, hey, we're, we're not going to go there because of uh, the fire zone there. Um, and, and so that might be something you run into with Northern California. And so I have found American Family is does really well. Now, they're not short-term rental specific, so you're going to have to find some short-term rental supplemental insurance, but it is they do and, and seem to be a little bit more 
liberal in the areas that they will lend or insure properties in those fire zone areas. So double check those options. Hopefully that's helpful. Greg, um, is there a way for people without a large nest egg to acquire a lifestyle asset? Yeah, Greg, it really, it really, there's properties in all price points. You don't have to have a ton of money to get into this game. You know, we've got members who have bought properties and currently buying properties, you know, in that, that sub $300,000 range, $150,000 range um, in certain smaller markets that makes sense. I just bought a property for $250,000 in Destin, Florida. I mean, of all places, it's teeny. It's a little one bedroom, one bath condo. Does really, really well. And you, so you don't have to have a ton of money necessarily to get in the game. And so, you, you, you know, not everybody is buying million dollar properties. And I think that a lot of people assume that, and that's not the case. So really look at different markets across the country. That And there's a lot of markets that are still really very affordable. Um, even though they've gone up as well, but there was they were affordable to begin with. And so they, they can be really good markets to invest if you don't have a ton of money to get started. And so look into different markets and don't just assume that it has to be these class A resort towns that perform well. You know, we've got over in our Vodacy paid membership group, we've got almost 1,300 members now. We're not all sitting in these class A resort towns with these crazy prices. There's a lot of our members that are in towns that you've never even heard of probably. Like when I get some of the property reviews that we're underwriting and looking at, I've never heard of some of these areas until I see them come across my desk. And so look into different areas because there's there's a lot of affordable areas still across the U.S. And so, and you might not think of them as vacation zones or vacation areas, but you'd be shocked at how many people are going and moving and, and going in and out of there and visiting. And so, um, yeah, look into the different areas with different price points and you can get in with a little bit less um, or, or a lot less in some cases, less capital than you might think you have to have. Good question. Justin, I'd love to see an episode with a few case studies. Yeah, so um, uh, this is another one example of maybe sit at the computer, dig into AirDNA, some of the listing aggregators. Yeah, Justin, we're, we're going to do that. Like I was um, telling Susan above, um, I will do a separate episode that, that we can really record and get that in. I think that's a great idea as well. Um, I think it'd be fun for you guys to see how we underwrite these deals. Ben says uh, two topics: creative funding strategies to continue growth. I have a five. I have five short-term rentals right now. I continue to find amazing deals. However, I have a lot of capital tied up in my existing deals. I could do a HELOC to pull some capital out. However, in today's rates, the deal has to be really screaming to float those types of things. And so, one, Ben, I'll, and I'll just, I know you have two questions, but I'll hit that one first. The, yeah, you're, you have the option of the HELOC, but like I, like I was telling and talking about before on uh, one of the questions above is, yeah, you have to be really careful doing that right now. And, and you have, have to make sure the deal really underwrites. The other option is possibly, especially where you've got a successful portfolio, is having some having some partners on those deals. Maybe you maybe you bring in a partner or two that you have a close relationship with them that has seen what you've already been doing and bring them in and, and uh, be able to expand that way as well. And so a couple of different different ways. Now, one of the thing that ha- things that have not been available to us that possibly could be in the upcoming years as things if if things start to like slide a little bit. And again, I don't think this is going to happen for a little while. You're going to have more seller financing options available. You're going to have more seller, um, you know, seller carry back type things. And you're going to have some creative financing deals that really have been difficult to do 
in the markets that we've had um, recently that are, and that's the benefit of some of the things like when people are like, oh, now, now I can't, you know, rates are really high. Now all of a sudden some of these mortgages, it, maybe you can assume some of the mortgages at a lot lower rate. Some of those things are going to be very attractive for buyers uh, and, and sellers to offer if they have to get more competitive in the market. We haven't seen that yet. Um, Again, most of the markets are still way out of line, supply and demand, but the, some of those things will help as well as you start to build the portfolio there. Second question, raising capital for larger deals. So we, we uh, talked about that, a couple of the larger deal opportunities, but they require additional capital to put them together, um, putting a few, a few partners that are um, willing to invest together. And so that is, and again, we covered that again on the JVs um, and the relationships and how you're going to do that. So the, the, hopefully those are, I know you're, you're trying to scale there and, and I think it's awesome. And I think you've got a lot of options, but things to consider and think about for sure. Um, let's see, we've got Sunrise Homes and I apologize. I don't, oh, Danielle, looks like. Danielle says, creative marketing. How do we drive more eyes and ears to our vacation rentals to increase bookings? You know, how do you drive more traffic to your personal website and build a repeat customer base? It's a great question. And we haven't had any marketing questions. And, and that's important right now. We're starting to see a lot of these markets get pretty saturated. And we're starting to see occupancy levels slide back down to some of the normal levels where some of us think, oh, man, the market's going down. Well, the market's not really going down. It's kind of, kind of coming back to normal. Um, and... We want to we want to drive more traffic to our to our listing, and so some of those and, and marketing starts with being able to have first and foremost a unique experience, a unique property that's set up directly for a target audience. That makes marketing on the back end much easier. So start there, then be able to set the listing up to where you're actually articulating what you have to offer. Right, a lot of people do a really good job of of a property, and then they set it up. And in, even if they set it up nicely like a model home, they don't articulate that very well in their listing. They don't understand what pictures to put in, the headlines, the descriptions, all those different things. There's, there's very specific things you should be doing setting up that listing to articulate your story and your offering to the target audience. And that will first help you get more bookings on any platform you're on, but you have to get that right in order to start doing like paid traffic and some of those creative marketing ideas, like getting an ad campaign on Google and on Facebook and some of these platforms and driving traffic to your direct, to your direct response website that you have set up and to generate some of those bookings. So those are some of the things that you can do on the back end, but it really, really starts. 90% of your heavy lifting is done by getting the property set up, telling a story and having a unique experience for a target audience, being able to articulate that through your pictures, your description and your headline, because that's what gets going to hook people. And then you can fuel traffic. Traffic is pretty easy to get, you know, and it, it can be a little expensive if you're just getting it and it's falling flat. And so you you have to make sure that you're able, your offer is good enough to attract those guests. And so start with making sure that the property is set up. And then once it is, look in and dive into the paid advertising options available to you on a lot of those platforms. They work really, really well. You guys, you know, we, we understand that game very well. We've, we've uh, haunted many of you on Facebook and YouTube and Google for some time, and that's how you found us. And so you can do the exact same thing with your properties, and we do so as well. Good question. Christina. I don't have anything in particular that I'd like to cover, but if you haven't covered a 1031 exchange or a reverse 1031 exchange, that would be a really good topic to consider. Christina, um, on that topic, I do have a 1031 expert coming on to talk about that. So 1031, for those of you that are unfamiliar with that, is when you sell a property, 
you're, you have a certain amount of time to identify another like, like investment type property to put that money into and you avoid capital gains. And so, but you have to do it a very specific way. You're not able to, you have to have a facilitator that helps you and there's, so we are going to have one of those facilitators come on and talk about that because a lot of people that are selling properties right now, particularly they're going to have significant capital gains to consider if they're not going to roll that property back into another uh, another property there. So good good question. We will be covering that um, in, an, in an upcoming episode because, again, uh, some of these I want to bring on those expert advisors that can speak more intelligently about this stuff than I will. Daniel. Hey, Sean, thanks for all the great content. I listen to a bunch of the real estate and short-term rental specific podcasts, probably too many, but really enjoy the Vacation Rental Revolution as it aligns very closely with my approach relative to all the others. Awesome. Thanks, Daniel, for the, the plug there and the compliment, and thanks for listening. A couple of potential show topics I'd be interested in hearing more about. I think everyone is keen to hear more about where we're at and where we're heading market-wise and implications for the future investment. There's been massive uptick in interest in short-term rental investing, and I think a lot of people have uncertainty around the sustainability of current practices and how to maintain a competitive advantage that can withstand a potential downturn. It would also be interesting hearing about how current dynamics are influencing different market types and who are going to be the winners and losers when the dust settles. Very, very good question. I know we've we've covered a lot of that before of kind of our opinion. I also have we've got a one of one of the nation's leading experts as far as um, looking at the markets and predictors as far as uh, the real estate. He's a real real estate analytics guru when it comes to predicting these types of things for major corporations and major investment groups um, on these market, the crash, the turn, where we're at, market cycles, all those different things. Um, and, and I actually have him coming on to speak very specifically about what he's seeing from the fundamental statistics that he's looking at in these markets. So we're going to talk a lot about that. And, and that's going to be a topic that, you know, I want to keep beating the dead horse with some of the things I've already mentioned. Um, but it is definitely something that is going to be on our minds, on my mind, on everybody's mind, on how we strategically navigate as things start to shift around because they are shifting. I'm not here telling you that they're not shifting around, but I am here to tell you I've been through more than one shift and and there's money to be made in every single different market cycle. And the strategy changes a little bit. So that's the, the next part of that question is, what are some of those competitive advantages? Well, one, you treat it as a really start by understanding what it takes to succeed in a game, right? And we've talked about that. We're, we are here to provide a very unique experience. People travel for unique experiences. If you can do that, if you can set your property up, a nice property in a nice area, and then make that property part of their experience, that's how you're going to stand out. And then understand on the back end of how you're going to articulate that through your photos and your headline and your description, and they're constantly changing. You're, to your, a lot of people will will put together their listing and it, it just is stale, right? They never make changes. That postcard, your first photo, your magnet photo should be changed on a regular basis. That postcard, those first five, when somebody pulls up a listing, those have to very strategically be picked out so that it can help articulate what that property is. A lot of people just start going through the property. So you'll have four pictures of the front of the house in the first five photos before they even get into the into the pictures and you're like man that they just wasted a ton of valuable real estate when somebody clicked on their listing for maybe only a few seconds they're making a judgment on those photos right out of the gate before they even click see more and so 
Understanding those types of things is how you're going to stand out and really one, setting up the unique experience and getting those repeat customers. Two, being able to articulate it to get those first bookings and then being able to add fuel to the fire with paid traffic. And so I think those are some of the things that you'll be able to. And we talked a lot about underwriting. Always underwriting is important if you're in the acquisition phase. Really understanding the numbers of the market you're getting into and then having contingencies built in, right? Making sure that that you have, you know, that you can operate with a drop in occupancy, a drop in nightly rates if that should happen. And can you still, can the property still sustain itself and you're not going to be in trouble if you're not, you know, if you're not operating at the very top of the market, right? You're, you know, you're, your 100% projection, what if you only got 80% of that? Does it still make sense? So really understanding the underwriting as well is going to help you succeed because that's going to be, you're going to be able to sustain for the long term. David, what is the best way to scale up but not get over levers? We've covered a lot of that today, David. So hopefully those answers, the, the previous answers were, were helpful. Partners are the, are the best way. Um, and making sure that you, and, and sometimes patience and time, right? If you're, you know, you're trying to scale and you don't want to overlever and you don't have a partner and you just have to start saving and you have to start letting, you know, you know, being diligent with saving up for that next acquisition. And sometimes we always want to do it today. Well, we might not, the best thing might be to, to wait until tomorrow till we can save up till we're getting into a property where we're not biting off more than we can true. And we're not over leveraging something else. If we don't, or if we're not, able to bring in a partner with us on the deal. So hopefully those are helpful answers. Francis, I think a topic for conversation would be the high interest rates and is it still a good time to purchase an investment property? It seems like everybody and their brother is talking about short-term rentals. Is there a point at which it gets saturated? Um, yes, everybody is talking about it. That's an indication that we're definitely not in the beginning stages of a cycle, right? We're, we're, we're in the maturity stage of the cycle and maybe not at the very peak, but we're definitely in the maturity stage of a cycle because everybody's talking about it. Everybody's getting into it. Everybody's an expert, right? How many experts are out there? I always tell people when you're, when you're vetting us out or anybody else, out, look at their track record, look and see how long they've been in. You'll find that a lot of people given advice, maybe on one property, maybe bought a property less than a year ago, and they're all of a sudden have a course and they're a coach and they're saying, Hey, I'm going to teach you how to do this. That's crazy to me. If you've got, you know, but maybe that works for some people, but I would, I would, uh, you're, you're exactly right. And it's an indication that the market is at the maturity stage of a cycle. And so, um, the high interest rates, are, you know, interest rates are, they were great when they were really, really low because it gave us the, it gave us a little bit more room in our underwriting and it gave us a little more padding with our, with our monthly cash flow because our, our property ownership costs, our monthly cost to carry that property was really low. And where rates are higher, you just have to underwrite that in and make sure that it makes sense still. And it has to still make sense when you underwrite it in the beginning. And, you know, you you don't buy a property hoping that it's going to start to perform. You have to buy a pr- property that you know, you feel comfortable that it's going to perform where you're at. When I started investing back in 2000, the rates were at 10%. I mean, my first couple properties were over 10%. I still bought them and I still cash flowed them. My first long-term rentals, when we built a portfolio of long-term rentals back in the day, 
We were at eight, nine, 10%. I remember when they fell below 10%, I was so excited. And so deals can still cash flow and make sense at high interest rates. You just have to make sure they do. And they actually underwrite with a higher interest rate. And you just don't have as much, you don't have as much wiggle room for the market to help you with low rates and you know prices going up every time you blink and you're you're making money in appreciation that's that we haven't been in a healthy market for quite some time you guys uh, i don't believe that two and three percent interest rates and markets that are going up by 15 20 25 30 percent a year in in a lot of areas is healthy that's not what that does that market bells a lot of bad decisions a lot of people that make bad decisions that market bells you out well now we're, we're coming into a, a, a time frame where you have to make good decisions. You have to understand your underwriting. And if you don't, you shouldn't be buying properties because you can get hurt, you know? And, and there are people that I agree with on the guy on the YouTube channel. There's a lot of people that are gonna that are gonna get hurt because if they continue to use the practices they've used the last couple of years, the market is not gonna continue to bail them out. And that's okay. That that is what it is. There's always people that get burned when they're when they start to get in and get a little bit too overzealous and thinking that they understand what they're doing and they're waiting for the market to bail them out. The market doesn't always bail you out. You know, there's only one cycle the market bails you out, and that's from the bottom to the top. Every other cycle doesn't bail you out. And so you have to make sure you understand your underwriting. So um, good good stuff. Let's uh, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna keep going. I've got I just counted, I've got eight more questions to cover. And so if you're liking this, stay on with us. It'll be a little bit longer episode. If you're not, you can you can tune out for us. But um, I want to get through these questions. This is a fun episode and uh, a different episode than I've ever done. So let's let's keep going. Let's get, this is kind of like a Q&A that we're able to do. And uh, let, let's keep going with the questions. So Michael's got one. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for providing the information content that you do. You're very welcome. Thanks for saying that. I've been listening over the past year and can picture this as being a Reality for me and my family. Really enjoy the success stories and podcasts with the members. However, I'd like to hear about some success stories where members didn't have as much startup capital and purchased less expensive properties. In our situation, 36 years old, wife is 30, we have two little boys under the age of five. In the next year, we'd like to make this a reality, but we're looking at using about thirty dollars to $40,000 of cash and possibly adding another thirty dollars to $40,000 with a HELOC. Doing the math, from the lessons you've taught in, in the past, we'd be looking at buying properties in that two hundred fifty to $300,000 range. So if you had any members with success stories like this, we'd love to hear about them. I know that price range doesn't get you much with the hot markets around the country and rising interest rates, but we're East Coast, Central Illinois, I think that about purchasing in the Kentucky Lake area, yeah, we're still open to other areas, just limited potential as we are trying to keep our first asset close. Definitely agree with you about purchasing your first lifestyle asset closer to home, and it will be about a three or four hour drive range for us. Looking forward to hearing from you, and thank you. Absolutely, Michael. So great question, and you're right on track. Like I mentioned before, there's a lot of markets that you don't have to spend, you know, a million dollars. And it's to your point and where you guys love those um, case studies, success stories, when I have successful members on coming on sharing their story. We've had a lot of members with a little bit more expensive properties. And, and I, I took note of that. I've had, there's been a couple of you that mentioned that. And so we've got a couple of our members coming on that have the, the less expensive properties. The interesting thing is, 
the return on the less expensive properties as an as a return of an investment actually is a lot larger in many cases. And so we're going to bring on some of those members. One of our members is a he's a, a school teacher and his wife is a stay at home mom with their with their little kids. So they only have one income, school teacher income, not a huge income. And they just bought their their first little cabin, and it's a smaller, uh, less expensive property. They rolled up their sleeves and had a kind of a family uh, fix-up project for a couple months and got it live, and, and they're just doing amazing with it. And so we're going to have him on as a, as a case study success story, but we've got a lot of those stories. And so, yes, they are coming. And in your situation, keep it going, man. This is this is awesome. You're going to be in a good position. And it's just a matter of finding the right properties that underwrite that work well for your particular financial situation. And you take that first one and you just parlay it. And so um, you, you guys are, are super young at this stage in the game. And so you, you'll have a lot of fun. And so we'll don't ever feel like you don't, you can't start because you definitely can. Now, does it take money? Yes, but you're talking about having, you know, 60 to $80,000 of capital. And can you get started with that? Absolutely. And so you don't have to go out and buy that million dollar property and you shouldn't. You don't want to over leverage and overextend yourself. And so you're in a good position. So keep it up, keep up uh, saving up for it and, and you'll get there. Brady, if you had to start over in today's market, what would you do? Um, great question, Brady. So I started and I'm going to go back um, because I've made a lot of mistakes. And I started in a market that was not great. Back in 2000, we were just going through the dot-com bubble. We had high interest rates and the market wasn't wasn't really that good. Um, the, the real estate market was going down a bit at the time. Um, and the biggest thing that I would do right now is 100%, it can be a little overwhelming in today's market. Because when I started, the noise was nowhere near what it was. Like I got my information from newspapers and going to Barnes and Noble. And I mean, the internet was around, but we didn't do a bunch of research on the internet like we do today. And, you know, we would, we would put ads in classified ads and look up properties on classified ads, those types of things. And so, you know, I wasn't, I, I wasn't bombarded with the amount of information that people are putting out right now. So when I say this, take that with, with what, for what it's worth, but I think it's really hard right now to start off and figure out, one, which road you want to run down. Two, when you do figure out what road you want to run down, who to follow, because there's so many people talking about how to do things. And here's the thing, there's not, a lot of them do have, even like, let's say, let's take me and three other people, for example, and let's assume we all have about the same experience. Like, I, like, I would pick a mentor that is doing what you want to do. They've been through a tough time or two. Um, if they've only seen good times, you, you need to know how somebody is respond, responds and if, they're, if they've got staying power, right? If you're going to find a mentor or a coach, and I always suggest if you're starting off, if I'm starting off, I've always had mentors and coaches, and that's always helped me get, get to point from point A to point B faster. But let's assume there's three of us that all have pretty similar experience. We've been through some ups, we've been through some downs, we're, we're doing our best, but what, what? let's say all three of us have different opinions on things, but all three of us have had success. What can get really difficult right now in today's day and age is deciding, because I do believe that the more focused and specific you are with your process, the better you're going to do and the better you're gonna succeed. And so, I, uh, I would pick one road you're going to run down and 
and try not to veer too far off of the line of the road you're you're running down. And the next thing is is kind of keep your head down and your blinders on when it comes to you know, what everybody is saying and just kind of try to step back to Daniel's point earlier. It's kind of overwhelming with all the negativity. And in today's day and age, if I was starting off, I would, I would give myself the advice to, to do exactly what I have done recently in the past is don't pay attention to the news. Um, it's always going to be bad news because that's what sells. Doesn't mean you can be that you have to stick your head in, the, in, in a hole in, in the sand and not know what's going on in the world. You can be aware of what's going on with the world without reading every article and headline and paying really close attention to it. I know what's going on in the world, but I don't get bombarded with the negativity every day. So find a mentor that has gone through some ups and downs, pick a process follow it, and then ignore the noise. Try to ignore the negativity out there. So that that's what I would advice I would do if I had to start over today, um, whether it's short-term rentals or anything. Let's see, Ryan, um, first and foremost, enjoy the time in Hawaii. Oh, thanks, Ryan. And uh, thanks for the content you share. You're very welcome. I have followed you for some time and look forward to the opportunity to join your program. Absolutely no reservations on what you provide and the power of short-term rental assets. Awesome. My biggest question is, how to leverage my current financial position to get into the game using primary home equity or cash flow from a cell phone business to acquire a rental property. I've listened to the asset-based mortgage podcast and 10% down second family homes, etc. As I listen to the case study and interviews of the members, I try to hone in on how they funded the first or second deal. I'm sure there are many tactics in your program, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on this and, and the other members on different sources for purchasing without over leveraging. So we talked about over leveraging. One, you don't want to over leverage, but some sources of capital are the HELOCs in properties that you have equity in. You have to make sure you have really good equity because they can, that can be a really great source of capital. In fact, a lot of our members, I don't um, do that right now. Um, and I, I haven't, I, I, but I've done it in the past. I've tapped into equity many times to acquire properties, but we have a lot of members that are doing that because a lot of people have pro equity, a significant equity in properties. You just don't want to over leverage. So we've talked about that, right? So that's the, that's kind of the asterisk on that. Where you are a a business owner and you've got cash flow in your business. I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs and business owners and um, speak at a lot of different conventions and, and, and businesses that have a lot of, you know, real estate brokerages, for example, the agents who are wondering what to do with their money. And one of the things is one, you, you can reinvest it right into the business. And a lot of business owners want to do that, but there comes a point where you want to take that cash flow and put it into other investments. And that's a great way to build your portfolio, use it for your down payment and go, go acquire an asset. Now, I, I typically will suggest at this stage, a lot of our members in the, for their first property, they'll use that 10% down financing. But right now I would look at that 10 or 20, 25% down financing, even with the DSCR lenders with a little bit higher interest rate, because you're going to have a better equity position in your property. You have a little bit lower payments because you're putting a little bit more down and you're not, you're not over leveraging, right? If you have a little bit of a dip here and there in the market, you should be, you should insulate that dip a little bit with a little bit more money into and down into the property. So, but the, the most common sources for down payment are the earned income that you're making or, uh, tapping into equity and other assets. And then the types of financing that are by far and away the most popular are the 10% down second home financing or the investment loan financing, which is still a full doc loan and you can get those 15, 20% down type loans. 
And then third and, and is that DSCR lenders, those DSCR lenders, and you've listened to some of those podcasts. So that, those are the biggest ways that people are financing and building their portfolio. So nothing really actually inside of our course that's much different than that other than, you know, direct contacts to a lot of these members or, or a lot of these uh, finance um, partners that we have. But, but really, those are the main sources that people have access to and use to build their portfolio. Good question. So let's see here. Lisa. Aloha, Sean. I've been exploring your site, book info, and am intrigued by your process. Once I finish the book, I'm going to consult a call. Awesome. I'm going to book a consult call. Awesome. Looking forward to chatting. Um, my hesitation, and possibly for others, is does this make sense for those who are retiring soon? I don't want to head into retirement with a bunch of debt. And once retired, loans will need to come from hard money or private lenders at a higher rate. Maybe this could be explored on the podcast. At what age does this process stop making sense? Thank you. Appreciate your no-nonsense style. Awesome. Thank you, Lisa. So that is a really good question. And one is why when in the very beginning we sit down and look at somebody's property goals, where they're at, and I can tell you whether you're you know, 20 years old or whether you're 70 years old, there are ways to invest that will fit your property goals. Now, you don't want to probably over leverage too much at that age, but typically when you're going into retirement, you've got some assets that you want to convert. And a lot of our retirement buyers are looking to invest in areas, and some of them actually will get rid of their primary residence because they want to invest in areas that they are in gonna, they're going to split some time and they're going to bounce around. And so, and they'll take some of those other assets and they'll park them in short term rentals and build a portfolio or buy properties that are areas that they want to spend significant time during their retirement and then and then rent them out and generate income or pay them off in the time that they're not using them. So it is an important consideration later in life when you're going into retirement and you're exactly right to acquire properties. You're not you're not using hard money to acquire properties, um, and, I, and you might not have meant that. But you you can buy these properties with DSCR loans. On I mean, a lot of retirement buyers use DSCR loans. I I've used DSCR loans. I just bought two properties with those types of loans. You're going to put a little bit more down, but in retirement, you're probably going to want to. You're going to probably have other assets. And you're going to have access to capital. That you're probably going to want to put a little bit more money down to make sure that they're cash flowing and producing some retirement income for you, but not only retirement income, but also places to stay. A lot of times our retirement buyers, that's part of their property goals. And so one, it really it really depends on your property goals and the strategy of what you're doing. But those are some, some common things that we see with some of our retirement buyers when we're helping them through this process. And so definitely, I would not say that there's an age that it stops making sense. There are situations that stop making sense. And those are very personal situations based on the capital you have available and what your property goals are. And so hopefully that's helpful. Chris, more details on what short-term rental investors have done to maximize the revenue on their properties via rate and or occupancy. So that, um, Chris, that goes back to one of those questions we were talking about. The biggest, the biggest things that we do to maximize any sort of revenue is we start one with the setup of the property and figuring out who we're speaking to and how we're setting that property up to deliver a unique experience and then look very specifically of how we're articulating that. What I mean by that is what are we doing what are we doing on the front end with our listing profiles to attract those guests? And that has to do with our photos, our headlines, and our description. And do those photos 
Tell the story of what it's going to be like to stay in our property. It's the number one thing you can do to maximize revenue on the back end of any property that you have. And a lot of people don't think that through very much. We focus a lot on the acquisition of buying the right property. And then we fall flat when it comes to articulating what it's going to be like to stay in our property. And that's why we get, that's why we blend in in the crowd. That's why people are worried about saturated markets. A saturated market really only means that there's demand in that market. If there's demand in any market, you're, it's probably going to be saturated at this stage in the game. It's not, we're not in the beginning stages of short term rentals. And so, how do you stand out in a crowd? That's how you're going to have to stand out in a crowd. And, and the nice thing about it is not that many people do it. You know, not that many people are maximizing their properties this way. And so it's something that you, that all of us should be considering and being able to do. And now all of a sudden you're, you're operating toward the top. Well, guess what? It's a heck of a lot less crowded at the top. And that's when you can raise your occupancy. That's when you start raising your rates. And so one, set the property up to where it's uniquely set up to be able to tell a story and be able to speak directly to or have a unique experience for a specific target audience and then being able to articulate that through your listing, understanding very much on the copywriting on your description, but more importantly, your headlines and those photos need to tell the story to to hook somebody in. And how to do that is is very, very important. So um, Richie, Appreciate the communication. I was curious if there was a possibility to do a 10% down second home deal and if you work with lenders that are able to do that. Yeah, we've had a couple podcast episodes about that, Richie. And again, something I would look really carefully at right now and making sure that the deal very, very much underwrites to to make sure that you're that you're not over leveraging with a 10% down loan right now but we've got a lot of lenders Jeff Chisholm has actually been a guest on our podcast twice and if you go search the podcast episodes one of them is is I think it was financing your property with 10% down and he has shares his contact information you can reach out to him he's one of the best in the business and uh and so there's a lot of lenders that will that are able to do that. Some of them don't understand it as well. And so you want to talk to a lender that specializes in that and being able to do that as a second home that you can rent out. Sometimes they have loan products for second homes that you're not allowed to do short-term rentals. You want to make sure you're able to do that as well. But if you look up uh, Jeff Chisholm, um, if you go to 10percentdown.com, that is his website and you're able to find him. But he shares more contact information um, that I just can't remember off the top of my head on some previous podcast episodes. So hopefully that's helpful. Um, couple more. We're down to the last two. So kind of a drum roll um, as we roll through this this episode. But Mandy says, I'd love to know what the cost breakdown of joining a program like yours is. What kind of money do you need to have readily available to invest in your program and a property? I know it varies, but a median amount. Mandy, we are not the cheapest game in town. And in fact, we're by invitation only, which is why the only option you never find the pricing online is because we don't let people join online. But our pricing is is roughly around that $10,000 investment mark. Um, depending on how and where you're coming in, we have an all-inclusive program, a masterclass, a coaching program, a mastermind group that, that we don't sell them individually. And so just to, to give you an idea of where we're at um, on our program. And so um, there's a lot of programs that are a lot cheaper than ours, but we have we, we feel like we are definitely the gold standard in this business, if I don't say so myself. But that is that is the the rough cost of our program is is right is about that ten thousand dollar mark. Um, and there's a couple different options depending on how you pay for it and finance it. So um, the other part is how much do you have to have to buy a property? I always tell people you've got three things to consider. 
you've got your down payment, which is going to be a percentage of the acquisition cost. It's going to be anywhere from 10 to 20%, maybe 25% down for your down payment. You've got your furnishing and setup cost. If you're going to set up a property from scratch and you're setting it up from the very beginning and it's completely unfurnished, I would budget about 8 to 10% of the acquisition cost to furnish the property. And then third, I would plan on about a six to nine month buffer as far as property expenses. You're going to make some money in that first six to nine months, but you're going to be, that's your kind of your setup phase. And you're going to have, especially the first few months of a property, you're probably paying the majority of those property expenses. That's your property, your mortgage payment, your utilities, those types of things during those first few months. And then as you start start to make money, you're going to start to supplement that. But give yourself about six to nine months before you're starting to really hit the projections that you projected in your underwriting. And so you've got, make sure you've got some money there to cover those property expenses in the, in the meantime. So that's, that's what I would plan on for not only our course, but also the property expenses as you start to acquire a property to budget for. Joel, can you address the slower year in the industry, bookings and average daily rate? I'm in 30A Florida market, and it's a lot slower this year than last. That's a great question, Joel, and one that I kind of hit on earlier, but um, I'll dive in deeper right now, is the slower year in the industry is something that we have been underwriting and projecting and, and baking into our underwriting for a long time. Now, One thing that um, a lot of people, and you guys have heard me talk about this if you have listened to other podcasts, there's a lot of markets that if you look back, people are projecting 80 and 90% occupancy. That is not a normal market. That's very, very difficult to sustain for short-term rentals. So if you hear anybody saying, how to get 80 and 90% occupancy, or you know, you're getting, you know, plan on this this occupancy in these markets, that's not normal. Whether you're in Orlando or whether you're in Park City, there's different seasonality and different different fluctuations in, in occupancy. And I never underwrite deals over 70% occupancy. 75 maybe in certain markets or certain times of the year. And I'll say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna project 75, maybe close to 80 in for two or three months in the summer. But a year for across the board in the year, we're not doing that. The other thing that we've seen is a lot of people that have been doing this for a year or two. They, they bought in the time of the never-ending summer, right? We had COVID shutdowns where a lot of people didn't have to go to work. They could work from home and they could, they could be anywhere and everywhere and work. And so we never saw this, we never saw the dips in the seasonality that we normally would see. And so when you underwrite a deal, you have to go back further than that and say, okay, where where does where are the dips in seasonality? You know, right now it's a hot topic. I'm recording this at the end of May. Well, May historically is a fairly low occupancy month, but most people didn't realize that because the last couple of years it's it's been like, you know, it's been like summer months. And but May is typically in most markets a fairly low low occupancy month. So the addressing the slower year in the industry is, I, I don't think you're going to see, because we are seeing rates go up and revenue go up. Demand is still really, really high in your area in, in 30A. It's a, um, but what you have to recognize is you can't underwrite, and hopefully you didn't underwrite the deal at 90% occupancy or plan on that kind of occupancy going forward. What you have to do is say, okay, I'm going to ride that wave while it's here. Now I'm going to put a little extra money in my pocket and I'll make a little bit of extra money. But long term, you, your occupancy and seasonality is normal in this game, in the short-term rental game. And that, that's why 
all of those things on the underwriting and occupancy is one of the major things we have to underwrite when we're looking at deals. You have to be able to look at and and pay attention to what the actual occupancy and seasonality is in your area pre-COVID, pre pre the never-ending summer, right? And the, this boost in, in short-term rentals. The demand is not going away, but we're getting back to normal things in our lives. We're getting back to graduations and we're getting back to school getting out and all those different things right now, this time of year. And we're going to get back to those types of those types of things that we normally would see seasonally and, and that affects our occupancy in a lot of areas. So don't don't worry about it so much. If you didn't underwrite it correctly, go back and know what you're going to look at going forward. And, and one of those great tools we always mention is their DNA. And you can go, there's other tools that you can go look at that stuff to kind of project what your seasonality is going to be. And you can look back, you know, three or four years and understand, and you'll find that the seasonality is very, it, I mean, it's very cyclical. It's very predictable based on the time of year. And sometimes it's obvious for us, right? That Florida 38, you're going to have really high occupancy coming up in June, July, August, and that's going to dip in September. You know, you're going to start to, you're going to have that really high summer season that's going to start to go down. And so you have to look at some of those things and make sure you predict it right instead of just assuming that we have this high occupancy all the time like we have the past couple of years. So guys, that is a wrap on my questions. I loved this episode. This is, I told you I was going to do an ask me anything type of an episode, and that's exactly what we did. I, I just read your questions word for word. And so for those of you that sent them in, thank you for being a part of our episode. For those of you listening, as always, thank you for listening and being the best part of this show. If you got any value out of it, we'd sure love a thumbs up, a like, a share, whatever you want to do there. Or give us a, leave us a comment and so that we know that you like it. Those things matter to us on those platforms. And so thank you, thank you, thank you as always. And we'll wrap today's show with one last thing. And that is I challenge you to go do one thing you can do today to go start building that life that you don't want to take a vacation from. Cheers, my friends. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Vacation Rental Revolution podcast. Share this with other people you think need to hear about it. And don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. Hey, Grace, is there a website? Yes! For more amazing content and expert advice, visit bodicey.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode.